Hey everyone, and don't worry, this is still a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. I'm not turning this show into a review channel, although yes, this is technically a review. (laughs) It's just that I really dig The Mandalorian, and I've been wanting to share my thoughts on the show ever since the first episode, so today's the day I have spoken. Also, Jody, if you're listening, I'm about halfway through that special Patreon episode on Schopenhauer, and I'm hoping to have it done by the end of this coming week. I'll probably offer a preview for the main audience and then release the full-length thing for, uh, for Patreon subscribers, or supporters, rather. But this is not a night for German philosophy. This is a night for uh, Baby Yoda, I guess. So I can remember there being some kind of buzz surrounding the possibility of a gritty Star Wars TV series geared towards adults, going back at least a couple of years now. And I think what came to mind for me was a kind of R-rated Star Wars show, naked space ladies, over-the-top violence, etc. Did you like how I said naked? (laughs) And that's not exactly what we get with The Mandalorian. I would say The Mandalorian is more PG-13, And yet, and this really impressed me about the show, you don't feel like you're watching a watered-down kids' show. It still comes across as really gritty, intense, and action-packed, despite the lack of sex and blood. And if you stop to tally up the bodies, there is a lot of death in The Mandalorian. And even though it's not Game of Thrones in space, (laughs) the violence, as sick as uh, this might sound, is still very satisfying. I remember people referring to the original Star Wars films as being kind of space westerns, and The Mandalorian definitely has that feel, in the best sense. Lots of cool action-packed shootouts, close-ups of the main character's fingers dangling by his holster, ready to draw. Even the show's main theme seems to suggest a hint of spaghetti western. And speaking of the theme, I absolutely love it. I've heard a few people criticize it, and I don't really get it. I think YouTuber Nerdrotic said he didn't care for it, and it reminded him of the music to a standard police procedural, or something like that. In fairness to him, I'm paraphrasing, but I remember him specifically using the phrase uh, police procedural, as if it sounded like the music to a uh, primetime cop show or something. And I couldn't disagree more. I think it's brilliant. It has the Western element, like I just mentioned. Uh, There's instruments reminiscent of harmonica or flute. I think maybe even uh, the sound of jangling spurs. I'm not sure. I remember that being mentioned somewhere. And yet it's also sweeping and orchestral with this epic, almost gladiatorial sound. It's kind of funny, though. I think movie reviewer Angry Joe jokingly noted that there's a brief transition where it sounds like the Rocky theme. Not that that's a bad thing. Uh, I've been watching Angry Joe a lot lately, and I've really been enjoying his stuff. And he seems to be a big Mandalorian fan, too. Uh, But yeah, great theme. And I find it often gets uh, stuck in my head for hours or days after I watch the show. But it's one of those songs you're glad is stuck in your head, you know? But back to the violence in the show. I think part of the secret to how you can have so much violence in a show that's still at least borderline family-friendly is the nature of Star Wars weaponry. No lightsabers in this show yet that I can recall. But, you know, things like blasters and lightsabers basically cauterize as they do their damage, so you don't have a lot of blood on screen. 
And I think this has always been true of Star Wars. There were some brutal scenes in the original movies involving characters getting hands and arms lopped off. The cantina alien that messes with Luke and Obi-Wan. I believe he loses an arm, right? Luke famously loses his hand during his epic encounter with Vader in Empire. But the point being, the lack of blood kind of makes the violence more palatable or less graphic somehow. But if you follow Star Wars at all, then you probably know that people have had problems and complaints with the franchise for a long time now. George Lucas's prequel films were heavily criticized for being too reliant on CGI, questionable additions like Jar Jar Binks, midi-chlorians, the somewhat wooden acting at times, etc., and the newer sequel films, as well as some of the one-shot films like Solo and Rogue One, have also come under fire. And I agree with much of the criticism of both the prequels and the newer films, and yes, just like in the memes, I am one of those atheistic or skeptical types that has a problem with midi-chlorians. There's online memes that try to suggest that it's somehow hypocritical or lacking self-awareness to be a skeptic in real life and then have a problem with something like midi-chlorians. Just a heads up, you can be an atheist, non-believer, skeptic, whatever term you want to use, and still enjoy fantasy, and even desire to not want to see the magic stripped away from a work of fantasy or fiction by attempting to over-explain things or offer a scientific explanation where one isn't needed. There were things I did like about the prequels and the newer movies as well. I actually liked Hayden Christensen's portrayal of Anakin Skywalker in Revenge of the Sith, where he really starts to give in to the dark side. And that scene where he's crawling out of the lava and screaming, I hate you at Obi-Wan, that was awesome. I also love the scene where he becomes Vader and the Emperor tells him Padme's dead. The only thing that ruins it for me now is the no. I don't think that bothered me the first time I saw the movie, but once people pointed it out, I can never see that scene the same again. Uh, and believe it or not, concerning the newer films, I actually like the character of Rey. I think Daisy Ridley is very charismatic and likable. I just think there was a lot of bad writing surrounding her character. Uh, like a lot of people, I had a problem with the total bastardization of the character of Luke Skywalker. Fans waited decades to see this character on screen again, and they turned him into a jaded curmudgeon. And I actually don't mind Adam Driver as an actor. I thought he was really good in the quirky zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die. But I cannot stand Kylo Ren. I absolutely hate the character. I hate Adam Driver's portrayal of him. Uh, let's see, what else did I actually like about uh, those newer movies? Oh yeah, Darth Vader's Rampage at the end of Rogue One, absolutely amazing, possibly one of the best scenes in Star Wars history. But the reason I brought all that up is because if you're a Star Wars fan who thinks the franchise lost its way and is pining for the good old days of the original films, the good news, The Mandalorian is the most authentically Star Wars thing I've seen in decades. You can really feel Jon Favreau's love and enthusiasm for the original movies. To me, it feels more like Star Wars than the prequels or any of the newer movies. If you're a fan of the original films, you'll feel right at home watching The Mandalorian. 
the classic droids and races, Jawas, Ugnaughts, whatever the heck species Bosk is, and even uh, monkey lizards, you know, like Salacious B or Brian Crumb. His middle name's not really Brian, I know. At least I don't think it is. Uh, speaking of that, I think I heard Nerdrotic speaking with another YouTuber named Overlord DVD or something like that. And, uh, damn, the things people find to, uh, you know, nitpick about. I think he, meaning Overlord DVD, I think he also goes by Doomcock. He and the dude from Nerdrotic are pretty popular YouTubers who cover sci-fi, fantasy, comic book kind of stuff with an anti-SJW kind of slant or from an anti-SJW perspective. And Overlord DVD was saying uh, he thought the quick scene where we see a monkey lizard watching another monkey lizard roasting on a spit in a marketplace kind of setting was needlessly dark or ugly or something to that effect. And he criticized the show's lack of innocence and wonder that we supposedly had with the original movies. And I'm thinking, really? You mean the original movies where once again we had the lopping off of limbs and extremities, where a tauntaun was sliced open resulting in its steaming viscera sliding out and Luke being stuffed inside it, where Jabba the Hutt ate live frogs and kept a bikini-clad Leia on a chain? I'm like, are you really upset by, uh, by this or are you just looking for stuff to complain about? It was kind of dark, but so what? I don't think it was too far out of line with what we would have seen in the original movies. And uh, didn't we see the charred corpses of Luke's aunt and uncle uh, while I'm at it? And I mentioned the whole anti-SJW thing a minute ago. For those of you who don't live on YouTube, it stands for Social Justice Warrior. It's meant as a pejorative for people who are overly politically correct or view everything through a lens of social issues that need addressing. And I actually find both sides of this divide pretty annoying. The SJW side and the anti-SJW side, they both seem to want to politicize everything. And The Mandalorian is a good example. In the first few episodes, we don't see a lot of women, with the exception, I think, of some quick shots of an extra, I guess. A kind of attractive blonde female bounty hunter. I assume she's a bounty hunter. In the bar or cantina. And a character referred to in the cast credits as the Armorer, who I believe is uh, played by actress Emily Swallow. I actually really like the Armorer character, and I don't know how high up she is in the Mandalorian hierarchy, but you get the feeling that if she isn't a leader of sorts, she's at least very revered or holds a very revered position. After being paid for a bounty, the Mandalorian will bring the steel he receives to the Armorer, and she reverently melts it down and crafts armor and weapons, etc. from it. With a portion set aside for children, the Mandalorians take in, referred to as foundlings. And it goes to show how much of this stuff boils down to spin. The anti-SJW types will try to say, Hey, look, they made this important character female. Woke culture strikes again. And then on the other side... Uh, the super politically correct people, whatever you want to call them, will complain about the lack of female characters on screen. And I believe Anita Sarkeesian of Gamergate fame actually tried to say there were no female speaking roles in the show or something like that. And people were quick to correct her, pointing out the armorer character. 
this is why we can't have nice things. People on both sides looking for crap to gripe about. <laughs> but I personally like the armorer character. I like the juxtaposition of the pleasant British accent with the armor and furs, including the almost Roman-style helmet obscuring the face. Pretty badass. So I guess next, I'll just quickly give my thoughts on the first four episodes. So some criticisms I've heard repeated regarding the first episode are that it opens with a kind of cliche bar fight trope and that the blue alien that the Mandalorian apprehends has a voice that's too quote-unquote normal, for lack of a better word. The Mandalorian walks into a bar. No, that's not the beginning of a joke. Speaking of westerns, this scene definitely had a western feel. You know, a lone badass walking into a saloon and drawing dirty looks from the patrons. So there's a group of alien thugs kind of harassing this blue fish-looking alien guy, threatening to remove his glands, I think it was, for money or something like that. The bar or saloon is in this icy Arctic territory, so when the mechanized door opens and the Mandalorian walks in, the strong Arctic wind or whatever uh, basically causes one of the thugs' drinks to spill over. So they start accosting the Mandalorian. He just ignores them at first, and I didn't notice this until the second time I viewed the episode, but what seems to set the Mandalorian off is when one of them intentionally scratches his armor. And it's a pretty badass scene. The Mandalorian fires his blaster, kind of shooting from the hip like in a western, starts taking guys out, fires a cable at one trying to run away, and causes him to be cut in half by the uh, mechanical door. And I like this twist. The blue alien is thankful that the Mandalorian intervened, seemingly saving him. But nope, he's actually the bounty he's been hunting. And there's this great line that the Mandalorian says, I can take you in warm or I can take you in cold. Makes no difference to me. Or something like that. And so this alien that some people thought sounded too human, uh, he's this blue-skinned kind of fish-looking guy, I think, but you know, bipedal alien, uh, kind of Star Trek type of situation where he's got a basically human face, but maybe some uh, some fins or gills coming off the side of his head, you know. And uh, he does sound just like some guy off the street. No voice effects or guttural noises or anything. Me personally, it didn't really bother me. It didn't interfere with my suspension of disbelief or anything. Strangely enough, though, I recently watched the fourth episode, and there was a woman who worked in a tavern or a bar or something like that. I don't know why, but I wasn't really buying her performance. Um, I don't know who she is in real life. Uh, maybe she's a female comedian or something like that. But she seemed to be kind of hamming it up, and it kind of gave me a Star Wars holiday special kind of vibe. You know, it just felt like a weird intrusive cameo or something. I just wasn't buying it. Uh, but I'll revisit that later, because I absolutely loved the first three episodes, but the fourth was the first episode where, sadly, I found myself kind of nitpicking and feeling like it was kind of, eh. Uh, the episodes have different directors, so hopefully the next one will be better. But back to the first episode, so you can say it was a trope or whatever, but I actually like the opening barroom brawl scene. Well, brawl might be the wrong word or an understatement since he, since he basically kills everyone. Uh, there was uh, lots I loved about that first episode. The crazy whale, crocodile, walrus beast, whatever it was, that emerges from the ice and attacks the Mandalorian ship. 
That was a classic Star Wars. Uh, that, that was awesome. I loved how he had uh, racks of carbon-frozen bounties uh, down in the belly of his ship. And when the blue alien tries to get sneaky and escape, he freezes him too. Obviously reminiscent of Empire Strikes Back uh, when Han gets carbon-frozen. The crazy shootout scene with the bounty hunter droid was fantastic too. I forget what the droid's uh, model number is. Is it a IG-11 or something? Uh, but something like that. But very reminiscent of the bounty droid from uh, Empire. Not the TV show, Empire. Wouldn't that be weird? Uh, Empire Strikes Back. And I should stop to talk about the uh, acting for a minute. There are some great actors in this series. Of course, in the lead, we have Pedro Pascal from Game of Thrones. I almost forgot his, uh, his name or the name of his character. What was it? Uh, Oberyn? Oberyn Martell. I liked his character, and I, I'm talking about Game of Thrones now, and I really wanted to see him beat the mountain. But we all know how that ended uh, horrifically kind of like the series finale. And since Mandalorians aren't supposed to remove their helmets, we've yet to see Pedro's face in the series, but I'm actually really impressed with how much uh, he conveys through body language. You have this character that barely speaks and whose face you can't see, but you empathize with him and you can really understand what he's feeling, uh, once again, just through body language. And Carl Weathers, or Apollo Creed, is in the show. He plays the leader of a bounty hunter guild. I think he does a pretty good job. Uh, I don't think his acting is necessarily anything special in this, but still just good to see Carl Weathers, I guess. Now, German director Werner Herzog actually has an acting role in this series, and I actually think he gives an amazing performance. It's this type of character you love to hate. He plays a really creepy villain with a kind of Nazi scientist vibe. A very intense, cold-blooded character. And so he hires the Mandalorian to take care of a bounty for him. And the Mandalorian is... Am I using that right? Is the bounty... Can bounty be used to refer to the person they're hunting? I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, but uh, he hires the Mandalorian and he's told the target is 50 years old. So you're expecting it to be a middle-aged human or something like that, but you find out, and here I'll offer a very serious all-cap spoiler warning, but we find out the target is actually a baby and its species ages slowly, and it's a baby Yoda. Of course not actually Yoda, but an infant member of Yoda's species, whatever the hell that is. I think Lucas intentionally left it a mystery. And so, you know, I'm a guy, I love the action and violence in The Mandalorian, but I also have a softer side, I love cutesy stuff too, and Baby Yoda won me over at first sight. And I'm sure all my Facebook friends are getting sick of all my Baby uh, Yoda posts, but that little guy is awesome. He's got the big Yoda ears and these big soulful doe eyes. Uh, I love the, uh, the little waddle he does when he walks around. Baby Yoda is definitely cuteness overload in, in a very good way. Oh, and I almost forgot, veteran actor Nick Nolte provides the voice of an Ugnaught that the Mandalorian befriends. And to be honest, I never would have guessed it was Nick Nolte. Uh, it sounds nothing like him. I, I never really thought of him as a character or voice actor. I, I don't know why. I'm not that familiar with his filmography. Maybe he has done stuff like this before. But he does such a great job. I've heard some people criticize it. Uh, I don't know if it's neurotic or what. But saying they were worried about Nick Nolte's health. 
himself because, you know, his voice sounded so shod or gruff or something. And I thought that was kind of weird. I mean, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they were just kidding or, or something. Nick Nolte has always had a gruff voice, but this doesn't sound like he's sick. It sounds like a well-crafted voice performance. Uh, there's even uh, some kind of accent in there he's doing. Uh, whatever it is, it fits the Ugnaught moisture farmer perfectly. They refer to individual episodes as chapters, so on to chapter two, The Child. There was some great stuff in this one, too. Some classic stuff we haven't seen in any of the newer movies. A Jawa Sandcrawler. The Mandalorian is returning back to his ship with uh, Baby Yoda. Should we? Uh, yeah, we'll call him Baby Yoda. Everyone else is. And discovers it's in the process of being stripped for parts. His ship, not Baby Yoda. Uh, by Jawas. And he proceeds to snipe some of them with his disintegrator, which is both brutal and hilarious. And strangely, Baby Yoda seems oddly amused. Uh, there's a great action sequence where the Mandalorian attempts to climb the side of the moving sand crawler while Jawas pop out and chuck junk at him. He tosses a few down, which is uh, once again both brutal and hilarious. Uh, he, even, he eventually makes a deal with the Jawas, and this is mediated by his Ugnaught friend. They'll give the Mandalorian his parts back in return for some kind of animal egg. This leads to the Mandalorian fighting a creature which looks really similar to an Earth Rhino. Uh, I believe they call it a Mudhorn. Another major spoiler, uh, it's hinted earlier on that Baby Yoda is Force-sensitive, but this is where we first see him, you know, really use the Force. The big Rhino, uh, or Mudhorn thing, is about to take the Mandalorian out, and Baby Yoda stops it in its tracks and levitates it in the air. This allows the Mandalorian enough time to get his bearings and stab the thing in the neck, killing it. Which some have criticized. Uh, this thing is huge, and he takes it out with one quick knife blow to the neck. I found that a little odd, too. Maybe because it's Disney+, Plus, they can't show him repeatedly shiving the thing in the neck. Or maybe we're supposed to assume he hit some kind of you know weak point or something. Uh, but I, I love the show, so stuff like that isn't a deal-breaker, of course. But it does make you stop and go, hmm. So he brings the egg back to the Jawas, and in exchange, they keep their part of the bargain and give him his parts back. He, the Mandalorian, and his Ugnaught friend repair the ship and say their goodbyes. And this leads into a somewhat dark episode entitled Chapter 3, The Sin. Especially a dark and disturbing episode if you're a Baby Yoda fan. I've watched all these episodes a couple of times now, but I could remember, and I actually like this about the show... There was this tension because we didn't know what the Mandalorian, who's been established as a hardcore bounty hunter, we don't know what he's going to do with Baby Yoda. There is character development, and we can see that he has a sense of honor, and despite his profession, at least some semblance of a moral conscience. But we still don't know what exactly is going to happen. And I was like, say it ain't so, but he returns to the client and turns Baby Yoda over to the bad guys. And they really know how to pull on your heartstrings. Baby Yoda can sense something's not right. Uh, we do see that the Mandalorian is already regretting or feels conflicted about his decision. Even though it's against his code, he asks the client what he plans to do with the child, which offends Werner Herzog's client character. Ultimately, the Mandalorian takes his payment and leaves without Baby Yoda. And earlier I mentioned how impressed I was by how much Pedro Pascal and, you know, the makers of the series are able to communicate what the Mandalorian is thinking or feeling, even though he's wearing armor and his face is hidden behind a helmet. 
He's on his ship, ready to take off for his, you know, his next bounty hunter assignment, and you can sense the turmoil or inner conflict, and he decides, screw it, I'm saving Baby Yoda. And this particular moment in the episode was like a gut punch. The Mandalorian sees some kind of dumpster or trash receptacle outside of the client's base. And inside it is Baby Yoda's discarded carriage or stroller. And that, that moment really affected me. The Mandalorian breaks into the base, takes out a bunch of stormtroopers, finds Baby Yoda alive, but in some kind of contraption and being subjected to some kind of testing. He frees the little guy, uh, takes out more stormtroopers on his way out, and there is, uh, there's one point where he gets surrounded. And he resorts to using the special weapon the armorer recently made for him, which they call whistling birds. And this was one of those hmm moments for me. I'm so emotionally invested in Baby Yoda's safety that any way he gets him out is all right with me. <laughs> but to be honest, I wasn't sure how believable the whistling birds were to me or something seemed a little odd. The idea is awesome. These little glowing projectiles that seek out multiple targets. But they were like, uh, you know, the size of Skittles or smaller, and yet each one could take out an armored stormtrooper. Maybe, uh, you know, if they traveled at the velocity of a bullet or something, but they're like these little peas that fly around uh, or whiz around like fireworks and then take out their target. Maybe I'm just looking at it wrong and there's some hypothetical explanation you could come up with some kind of advanced ballistics technology or something. But at the end of the day, Baby Yoda was safe and reunited with the Mandalorian, and that's all we really wanted, right? And this episode has a really awesome ending. The whole bounty hunter guild turns against the Mandalorian for betraying his client and thusly the guild code. They all come after him, and he puts up a valiant fight, takes out a bunch of them. But he finally starts running out of ammo, and it's another uh-oh, this is it kind of moment. But then all of a sudden, the cavalry arrives in the form of his fellow Mandalorians, who are also, you know, based on this planet. They basically make short work of the guild. I absolutely loved the big Mandalorian with the kind of big, heavy space Gatling gun or whatever it was. Uh, the show takes place after the fall of the Empire, and the client seems like he's affiliated with the remaining Imperial dregs, and he actually has stormtroopers for guards. The other Mandalorians didn't seem to approve of Mando, shall we say, uh, entanglement with these Imperial types, so they were probably glad that he stormed their base. So the Mandalorians realize that this place isn't going to be safe for them anymore and they're going to have to relocate, but they don't seem too bothered by it. Loyalty to their own, helping their fellow Mandalorians seem to take uh, precedence. There was a quick moment at the end of this episode where the Mandalorian is flying off with Baby Yoda and his ship, and a fellow Mandalorian, I think it was the big dude with the, uh, the heavy uh, gun, flies up beside him using a Boba Fett-style jetpack and gives him a quick military salute. Some people found this to be a bit corny, but I didn't mind it. I heard someone say that it was supposedly a fun little nod on Favreau's part to the Rocketeer or the Iron Man franchise. Uh, some might say, hey, a military Earth salute in a galaxy far, far away. But why not? If within this world you have humans in another part of the universe, there's probably only so many hand gestures you can come up with, uh, you know, and theoretically they could have developed a military salute like ours uh, on their own. W you know, and ours is derived from supposedly the tradition of warriors raising their visors. 
Am I thinking too much about this? Probably. But now on to uh, the fourth episode, which I believe was entitled Sanctuary. And as I was saying earlier, this was the first episode that didn't really blow me away. I found it kind of, uh, upon watching it the second time, I did find myself enjoying it a little more. And I found that I wasn't judging it as harshly. But still, I didn't think it was nearly as good as the first three episodes. The gist of it is the Mandalorian decides to hide out on this backwater planet until things blow over a bit. And the episode opens with a long scene of a bunch of krill farmers working in the marshes or whatever the hell it is. And then they're uh, suddenly attacked by a marauding band of dog people, I guess. Uh, I have no idea if it's an established species or something Favreau or Favreau came up with. And I don't know, but there was... Just something very kind of colonial Williamsburg about all the extras and the farming clothes that took me out of uh, the show or disrupted my suspension of disbelief. And the rest of the plot basically consists of the Mandalorian and a new character, Cara Dune, I believe it is, played by Gina Carano, uh, who is a, both an actress and a former mixed martial arts fighter, I believe. Um, very, very badass lady, uh, jacked, but pretty, pretty, but jacked. Uh, it, you know, it consists of them teaching the villagers how to fight so they can take care of the dog people and uh, an Imperial walker they got hold of somehow. And there's a nighttime battle scene that, uh, to me at least, seemed to kind of drag. It reminded me of one of those scenes from The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, where every th everything is so dark that you kind of lose interest and it's hard to tell what's going on. But in fairness, it probably wasn't that bad. You could still, you know, uh, basically see what was going on. But for some reason, I, I just wasn't uh, too impressed with that scene. And there was a part of that scene in particular that I found really tedious. So the villagers earlier had dug a big pit uh, in hopes that the Imperial Walker would step into it and be rendered, you know, inoperable or whatever. And so it seemed like they wanted to build this tension where you're on your where you're on the edge of your seat waiting to see the Imperial Walker fall in the hole. But it just seemed too dragged out or something. You know, I'm like, okay, is it gonna fall in or not? I don't even know if I care at this point. You know what I mean? Um, I think it basically, eventually it does, I think. Or at least I remember the thing either being partially inside the pit or on its side or something and the Mandalorian chucking a grenade inside it. The very fact that I'm having trouble remembering probably, uh, you know, tells you that I wasn't quite as enthralled with this episode as I was the previous three. My favorite parts of this episode were probably the ones where we get to see Baby Yoda playing with the uh, the village kids or whatever. Um, and uh, there was another great scene, too, where the Mandalorian and uh, Cara Dune, when they first meet, they really slug it out. And they're both on the ground with their pistols or blasters drawn, you know, pointed at each other's heads. And all of a sudden, you know, they can feel they're being stared at or whatever and there's little baby yoda drinking from a bowl of soup just kind of chilling looking at him <laughs> definitely like a comic relief kind of moment and the mandalorian's just like you want some soup <laughs> and then they go inside and they're they're good after that and i should also mention there was this little subplot where there's this kind of budding romance or romantic interest at least between the mandalorian and a village woman but the episode was so 
short, relatively speaking, that maybe it seemed a little rushed or it wasn't really fleshed out. Uh, and also, uh, it, it happens that this village woman is a crack shot and everyone else in the village kind of sucks with a gun. And they, they never really go into this character's backstory, where'd she learn to shoot, that kind of thing. I mean, maybe they will later on, but I don't know if we'll see the people of that planet again, because, you know, they, they leave the planet at the end of the, uh, the episode. I believe this particular episode was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Is that her name? Uh, Ron Howard's daughter and a actually a, uh, a very uh, successful actress in her own right. And I don't want to put all the blame on her. I don't Maybe it, this episode, maybe it was partially the writing. Maybe it was partially the directing. I'm not sure. And I don't want to pan her, but, you know, each episode has a different director. So here's hoping that the next episode is at least, you know, moderately better or, you know, closer in quality to the first three episodes. And I almost forgot to mention, I absolutely love the way the episodes end with the montage of stylized drawings or images depicting stuff that happened in that episode with, you know, accompanied by the, uh, the Mandalorian theme. I always stick around for those. Uh, but anyway, the Mandalorian definitely gets my seal of approval for whatever that's worth. And I highly recommend it. It's quickly become one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Absolutely love it. All right. As always, thanks for listening, uh, brothers and sisters. And until next time.